millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Oh, totally countryside. I uh, moved here in 2019, so not even quite two years ago. And uh, it's just a small, super small town. It's called a village. It's a town called Canning. And uh, I'm like an hour, just just over an hour from the main city in the province and also the airport. That's that's a good distance. Mm -hmm. It's not a million miles away. No, it's perfect. It's perfect because uh, I don't know. It just... I didn't want to be in the city. I I lived there, you know, a while back before I moved away. So coming back to Nova Scotia, I didn't want to come back to anything I where I'd been. I didn't want to go back to where I grew up, which is, you know, a real, you know, classic fishing town and but kind of also super depressed. I mean, certainly in the nineties, I think it's better now, but I just didn't want to go back there and then and then I didn't want to go back to the same city that I went to university and I, you know, I had my time. So I tried something new and went to a farming area, which is quite rare in the province because it's all maritime and fishing. And this is a little agricultural area that's, uh, you know, I'm still close to the ocean, but it's, it's quite lovely. Does it feel different to where you grew up? Yeah, definitely. I think it's about as different as you can get in the entire province because it's, it's just got very different soil. It's uh, much more fertile, so it brings in a different type of trees, like a lot more hardwood, a lot more green, and farms, and uh, there's actually some, like, vineyards and stuff. And where I'm from, it's more uh, rocky and rugged and and, uh, more foggy, and and there's more black flies and mosquitoes and that kind of stuff. (laughs) So this is kind of idyllic. It feels like I'm in, like, somewhere in Ontario or maybe upstate New York or something. Whereas the rest of the province is like Maine. So how far are you from where you grew up? That's a two and a half hour drive. So not, not too far. My, my folks are still there. So, which is really important. That's because that's one of the reasons we moved back. Um, we have a daughter who's two and a half now. And uh, it just didn't seem like it was going to be a fun go in Toronto. Living in the basement with our daughter and 
being so far away from family. So we moved here, but again, like two and a half hours from my parents is also pretty perfect. <laughs> it's, it's like a good distance. <laughs> How, yeah. You won't have them dropping in unexpectedly. No. In touch and distance, but there's also, yeah, it has to be pre-planned. Yeah. And, and I, and, and I've come to really like where I grew up. Like I, I certainly like it more now than when I was there in high school. And so it, it's, it's special. It's like, it makes it an adventure and my daughter likes it cause she gets to go when I mean, she doesn't like the drive. It's way too long for her patience, but it, it still feels like an adventure. We go somewhere that's different. It has a different vibe. It, you know, it feels like a journey. And it's and I get to go back to this place where I grew up, where I have all this nostalgia. You mentioned high school there mm-hmm. as well briefly. I heard you had a reunion with your high school band. A couple. <laughs> with that, maybe. You did your research. <laughs> that, yeah, that's kind of part of this whole thing. Like you know, my daughter was born. We had gone from rural New York to Toronto to be back in Canada, as as Canadians will do when they have to you know, go to the hospital <laughs> and, uh, seemed like the right thing to do. But then after, I guess she was not even a year old yet. And my high school band wanted to do a reunion. Sorry. It's not a high school band, a band I was in in high school. It was, it's kind of a metal band, a little bit of a grunge, uh, thrash. It started out, it's kind of like thrash metal. And then we got more into like Nirvana and stuff. So it kind of, you know, a nineties kind of thing, but, I think we were kind of cool and original. Well, we were from the middle of nowhere, so we had our own thing going on. And, and uh, you know, I had no interest in revisiting it until suddenly it felt right. Everybody was keen. And so I packed up the family and we went back home to do the reunion. And it was sort of the first time in my life I was like, I have to move back. Like, it was the longest vacation home, again, because of our daughter, like, taking that time to be with my folks. And to sort of unwind and you know it was the first time getting out of that basement in Toronto where we were living and, and I just was like out of hell with everything I'm just gonna move back and so it was my heavy metal band that uh, lured me back home <laughs> <laughs> when you say a reunion did you did you just meet up with each other or did you meet up and jam or what was the kind of story uh we played a show so we wow. really crammed like it, like so my brother was in the band. I mean, that's often how it is with your first bands. You're often with a sibling, you know, especially when you're from a small town. And he lives in California and he didn't have nearly the time that the rest of us did. So he kind of flew in with less than a week to prepare. And so we really crammed. It was like cramming for an exam. You know, guys who haven't played music together in 20 years. And, uh, you know, the other two guys really don't play much music at all. I, you know, I can't speak for them, but it, it's my understanding that they're, they're not really active in bands and stuff like I am. And uh, so we really had to get our chops back. And then we played a concert and it was cool because we, we sold out the venue and got moved to the bigger venue and then almost sold that out. So it was like a proper, proper reunion, like a proper concert that was packed with like... That's wild. Yeah. And it's the closest thing I've had to a high school reunion because I, I didn't... I don't have enough love for that part of my life to like go back to high school reunions. I, I didn't have any interest to do that. And yet that night in that room, I was looking around and there were so many people that, that like I hadn't seen in 20 years and, and it spanned a wider age group. So it was a lot better than just going to a high school reunion. It was like, I'm going to, I'm seeing f- like friends that were friends of my sisters or my brothers and their younger siblings. Like it was, like, there was a lot of, and, and also from different towns, like it, it was in Halifax and, uh, 
but a lot of people from my hometown went and the people from all over the province came. So it, it was a kind of special event that allowed us to kind of reconnect with so many people. And it was nerve wracking. It was totally scary. <laughs> <laughs> I had to scream. Like I haven't screamed and you know, I might yelp and bellow and, and do whatever, especially in Holy fuck. But like, this was the first time in, since I was like screaming my, my high school lyrics. It was, it, it was pretty challenging. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you say it went from a kind of metal band to a grunge band, was that in tandem with what was happening at the time? Like, did it kind of start in the eighties when metal was going on? And then as the nineties came around, you moved more into that domain? Kind of. Yeah. Um, cause it was like, so, like I said, it was my brother's band initially. Um, he's four years older than me. And, and again, like the kind of dynamic that exists in a small town, like a pre-internet small town is in, and that's, you know, truly remote. Like we're not like an hour away from like a big city. We were, we were stuck in the middle of nowhere. So it's hard to have a band. So my aspirations to have a band ended up with me just finally sneaking into my older brother's band, you know, like when I wasn't too big of a nerd, to hang out with them but that kind of is a big part of the change because you know we were you know we our only outlets for discovering music were like thrasher magazine and stuff like we didn't really have any other way of finding good music and my brother's band was essentially a thrash band like a crossover kind of band like doing dri covers and sod and that kind of stuff playing slayer maybe and i loved all that music but i was kind of the more introspective younger brother and at that time probably like ninth grade i was uh we got cable for the first time when because we couldn't get cable before because we lived too far out in the boonies so we got our cable television and that was opening me up to like staying up really late and watching sonic youth and and I got really into uh, Soundgarden, Louder Than Love, that record. Uh, so so kind of like 89, 90 records. At, but I was prob- they were probably already a little bit old, but that, that's what was out there at the time. I was probably like 12 or I don't know how old I was. But so I was a little bit of an outcast from my brother's friends. Like they were listening to their SOD and Anthrax and stuff. But I was like listening to this totally weird music that they didn't understand. Like they, they weren't getting down with Sonic Youth and... So I think it was interesting because then me joining the band and bringing the stuff that I was writing um, just naturally put us on par with, it, it kind of was a little bit of, a, it allowed us to be a little bit of ahead of our time because we were, like I said, from the middle of nowhere, like we didn't have access to cool stuff, but we kind of predicted where things were going because we took that stuff that I was listening to and kind of combined it with the more heavy metal stuff. and. You know, and then a few years later, there were bands like Deftones. And so we're like, oh, that's, that's what we do. That, that, that makes sense now. But at the time, it was just, especially in our hometown, people were like, what the fuck is this music? <laughs> <laughs> we liked it. it. It caught on and it, it did well in the province. But it was, especially in Canada, it was just like there wasn't a market for it. So anywhere so that I was aware of, especially not in Halifax or Nova Scotia. Is this around the same time that you formed Dependent Music? the label yeah yeah and that was the, that was for that particular band and then you know our friends bands as as you know we'd start to put on our own concerts and go around the province and play like all ages venues and you know curling rinks and things like that you know um 
and uh, we just kind of put together our own little collective. And uh, it, it wasn't all that serious. But then after I moved to Toronto, I found myself unemployed because I was working in film and that's freelance and I had downtime. So what I started doing was, uh, you know, keeping in touch with some of the younger bands that were sort of the next in line in that scene, doing what I could to support them. And so I continued doing the label as a means of uh, helping out these other bands. It wasn't really my, I didn't really have my own music on there anymore. It was just more of like a hobby project. And then, you know, over time, holy fuck and, and a lot of other things came along and it was a good kind of foundation. So it's it very far removed from the, you know, thrash grunge bands we started with, but it, it was sort of the foundation of something. It's nice to have that thing that continues on the trajectory with you as well. That kind of constant that progresses in tandem. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and a lot of that stuff I've left behind. And it's a little bit like, like I felt two summers ago when I came back, like it felt like things were coalescing, like things were kind of coming back into my life. and. You know, I've had friends discuss restarting the label, but, you know, at a time in my life, I let all of that stuff go. I kind of had to. I was no longer, you know, I was a different person. I was playing in Holy Fuck and touring and playing Glastonbury and places like that. I wasn't really in a position to keep alive this hobby project of, like, my high school friends. So, so yeah, I let it go. But, you know, it, it's, it's a nice part of my past and, and it feels a little more relevant now that I live here again. Like, who knows? You know, who knows? Maybe, maybe the, it, it's, it feels like it's still happening because I'm still playing music with some of the same people. And even though maybe we've moved on from those bands, like people like Lil Campbell, he's an incredible drummer. He plays in, he's played with Holy Fuck over the years off and on. And he plays in a band called Winter Sleep and he's just a super talented drummer. And so he's moved back as well. So he and I get together and work on music. So it, it feels like those seeds we planted, you know, now 20 years ago are still, you know, still fortuitous. They're still, you know, they're still yielding some sort of harvest. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. feels nice. You, you mentioned leaving stuff behind a few moments ago. I don't know if you still have this, but kind of touching on what we were there with the 80s, you used to have a signed or an autographed Heineken can by Metallica from the night the clip died. <laughs> yeah, dude. Oh, shit. You have done your research. I was just <laughs> looking at that because um, it's at my folks' place and, you know, I was there recently and I was just looking at that thinking, how fucked up is this relic? And it just sits there and, you know, it's like, I got to do something with this can. <laughs> got to drink out of it someday. <laughs> How did you get it? Yeah. I, you know, I'm not quite old enough to, you know, the, the 80s. I was still, uh, you know, grade school or whatever. But uh, we ended up with a Swedish exchange student living with the family in, in high school. And that would have been when, like, Inner Sandman became this big hit. Probably, like, ninth grade, tenth grade or something. And then... Uh, so she was not the type of person who would really have been aware of Metallica, but because that song became a hit, again, Thrasher magazine, I found an old Thrasher magazine and I, and I was reading about Cliff Burton. And so I brought it up at the exchange student. I was like, Hey, did you know that this, the original bass player from this band that it, it, you know, crashed after this concert in Stockholm and she freaked out. She's like, Oh my God, my brother was at that concert and she didn't remember what the band was. She just remembers the story when she was younger of her brother being totally devastated because he came home from the concert 
and he didn't hear the news yet. It was a late night and he came home probably in the early morning hours with all these autographed cigarette butts and cans and totally stoked that he got to hang out with Metallica. And, uh, then, you know, the family had heard the news because it was on the news. It was in the paper in the morning and uh, yeah, it was pretty devastating for him. But so she remembered it was one the kind of event that she tucked away in her memory. And then, you know, years later when we were in high school together and his band had a hit and I, and, she, she uh, got her brother to send me that as because he didn't really care anymore. He probably outgrew that face, unlike some of us. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was totally, I couldn't believe it. It was pretty awesome. That's crazy. I mean, pretty Held on to sad and cool, but yeah. yeah. So you, after you leave Nova Scotia, you go to Toronto and you said you were working in the film industry there. Walter March, was that in Toronto? Yes. Yeah. That's crazy. What was he doing yeah. there? Did he live there? No, um, he actually does have family there, but uh, that's just an unrelated coincidence. It, Toronto had a bit of a, a film scene at the time, um, a film industry still does. It's got the film festival. Yeah, the film festival still does really well. Um, but in terms of film production, I, you know, I, I think we've all seen it's like certain cities go through little renaissance periods where they get a, a lot of films being made. And I think it has, sometimes there's uh, incentives tax incentives or whatever a lot of the canadian filming went out to the west coast in vancouver but there was definitely a period of time in toronto where it was happening the, to a certain extent there was a bit of it out east and i uh, that was one of the reasons why i thought i'd move to toronto is because i i got a couple jobs as like a pa and, a, and on a couple tv shows while i was living in halifax you know I, and i had friends in toronto and one of them was trying to get a similar pa job in the film biz there. So he and I moved in together and, you know, I was working in a music warehouse, like a distribution warehouse, you know, with a bunch of musicians packing CDs and boxes and stuff. But then when I wasn't working, I was handing out my resume and trying to get a job. So I got a PA job in the wardrobe department um, on this one, one film. And it was just a day, it was just a, you know, just filling in for someone. And so when that, so somebody, suddenly they needed a post PA for the editing room. So I didn't have editing experience. I didn't really, you know, I didn't really study film, but I ended up assisting this very famous editor named Dee Dee Allen. And, uh, you know, I was like the, the PA basically. So I'd be buying them coffee and doing that stuff, but yeah, they, they really enjoyed working with me and I, I was catching on quick because I was really keen. It was really exciting. It was kind of the first job I had where I was excited and they were really nurturing. And and that's where I bought, uh, that's where I got the synchronizer I use in Holy Fuck. That's where I got a bunch of the film stuff I started using in my band, which was yet to come. But um, following that movie, Walter Merch came to town to be to shoot a film. And he was friends with Dee Dee Allen and um, she recommended me. And so I ended up in his editing room, which is really, really cool because he's such a fascinating character. And he's, he, again, very nurturing people, people that very, are very uh, eager to share their process and to talk philosophically, you know, unrelated to film, just talking about, you know, science and psychology and it's the universe, you know, we, we had so many interesting conversations. And one of the things he really liked about me was that I was a musician because he really found there to be a connection between music and musical sensibilities and editing, but also in 
many principles and underlying many things in the, on our planet. So he kind of was like the first person who encouraged me. I mean, I certainly didn't get that kind of encouragement in Yarmouth, Nova Scotia. I didn't in high school and I certainly didn't playing in my metal band. <laughs> so, you know, it was like the first time I wasn't, I didn't feel like an outcast or something. I was like, Hey, this is cool. Like he, he's the legend and he's incredibly brilliant and he's very inspiring. And yeah, it, it was a great experience. What film was that? Well, both films I did back to back with Dee Dee Allen and Walter, great cast and great movies, even good directors. Uh, you know, Catherine Bigelow was directing the, the movie I was doing with Walter, wow. but not a great film. You know, film it's, was uh, it? it's called K-19, The Widowmaker. I've n- not Never familiar with it. it. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I like some of Catherine Bigelow's stuff, but no, I've not, uh, I'm unfamiliar with it. Yeah, I don't know what was wrong with it. It just had, like, you know, some movies are a bit flawed and they just, they just don't turn out the way they're supposed to and, and kind of get shelved pretty quickly. Um, but the experience was great. Like I, I enjoyed, you know, I got to, I got to hang out with Harrison Ford quite often. <laughs> wow. Yeah, he he offered me a coffee. I thought that was pretty cool because <laughs> the big joke in the film biz is like all you do is get, you know, more important people coffee and and yet he he was he went and got me a coffee, so it was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> and what was the film with Didi? Uh that was called uh, John Q and that's another very similar in terms of how it was flawed, didn't didn't really like Denzel Washington was the star in that movie, so again big names, but uh yeah, just stuff you might find in the deep, you know, deep vaults of uh, Amazon or something, maybe. But uh, yeah. <laughs> so, is it through that connection that you ended up in Wild? No, actually, I'm totally unrelated. Yeah, I have a lot of unrelated threads. It's, it's sort of like <laughs> yeah. we've had a chance to explore a couple of them already. And in the, in the first thing we were talking about, it, it does feel like a thread, you know, growing up and the label and everything, but. It also, at the same time, putting it all on paper, it feels like there's just so many unconnected tra- trajectories. <laughs> Wait, so where did the thread for Wild come from? Well, so with Dusted, that record, you know, I had a friend who told me he was working on a film down in Atlanta, and he, he knew that I toured all the time with Holy Fuck, so he asked for some suggestions on places to go and blah, 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 and... The next time I caught up with him, he was like, oh, I, everyone on the set loves your Dusted record. And uh, that, I don't, I don't know how they got it, but that was his news to me. And that movie was Dallas Buyers Club. And so then one day out of nowhere, I got, an, I got first an email that quickly turned into a call, like an email out of the blue. And then 10 minutes later, I was on the phone with the director, uh, Jean-Marc Vallée. And he was a fan so that's all i knew i didn't know how he got into my music i I actually thought it was probably through this friend of mine i thought well maybe he's played the record for people on set or whatever but um sent me the script and they flew me down to portland and had me um sing this song and be in the movie but the interesting thing for me was when i first met him in the parking lot you know after wardrobe (laughs) just as soon as i meet him he's classic quebec kind of a classic Quebecois kind of thing. He starts singing and air guitaring a song of mine. That's from my, <laughs> that was from my very first record as a solo artist that I don't know how the hell he got his hands on, but like just this EP I had done. And uh, that was cool because it, it kind of showed me that he had been 
you know, following me for a long time. It wasn't just this latest record that as I assumed, I still don't know, you know, how we, you know, I did play Montreal occasionally and that record did get some attention, but, um, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. But yeah, he, he, then he said to me, I thought you'd be older. And I also took that as a compliment because I guess he didn't realize that this record he discovered of mine, I was really young when I made it. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's just interesting how years later it came to pay back in a, in a weird way. So is he French Canadian? He is. Yeah. Yeah. He's ah, one of okay. the great Quebec directors. Yeah. I didn't realize. So was he kind of in a similar sense like Denis Villeneuve and stuff? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think they're buddies and, and uh, the same, um, some of the crew that I met, the like cinematographer and art directors and some of those people work with Denise, Vill- Denise Villeneuve. And uh, I had a brief correspondence recently with the guy from the art department. And he said that my Blackout Summer record was a big soundtrack in the art direction room on Dune. So, wow. <laughs> so that, you know, here I'm adding my own bragging points. I don't know. It maybe doesn't sound too... Uh, of me but uh you know not that that can amount to anything but it it kind of you know gives me a little spring in my step because i'm i'm sure that movie is going to be cool well it's nice too that your music is connecting with people as well that's just it you know like like obviously the big thing we all hope for is to to see our music on the screen and in in that realm and but yeah like you said to know it's connecting with people um, that are in you know the visual arts or anywhere just connecting with people in general is really is really rewarding and it does encourage me to, to keep trying keep doing it i feel like we've kind of we've jumped back and forth a little bit between your time in nova scotia and your time in toronto how was that divided up in terms of this record itself what's the kind of ratio in terms of where it was constructed between the two that's a good question i i, I definitely feel like there's a there's a narrative assigned to this record that may be slightly apocryphal i it's just natural the way that happens like here we are in a pandemic um listening to this record now is going to feel shaped by recent events and then the background story for me is that now i live in nova scotia and that's a big part of the sound of this record um which are all they all feel relevant but the more accurate story is that it was made in toronto before the pandemic <laughs> so so it has this illusion but it, i did so i i i started the record when i still lived in toronto i brought it home with me on that trip we were talking about when i came back for the reunion with my metal band i brought my studio setup i packed up actually i tore down almost everything i had and managed to fit it all in the in the car um, so I brought my, you know, compressors and interface speakers, or, you know, I just packed up the whole home studio. And I think in the back of my mind, I started to realize I was going to move. I was like, oh shit, I'm about to, I'm about to turn my life upside down. I'm about to like totally fuck everything up. And I have this record that I'm working on that I really like, and I really believe in this record. So it provided a really good incentive for me to finish it because my time in Toronto working on that record was very natural. It was all live off the floor, like with a, you know, in a comfortable studio where just working with an engineer who I get along really well with. And so I ended up with a hard drive full of these really just simple takes. Like here I am with the guitar. It's turned out pretty good. We got um, a friend to play bass and a guy to play Wurlitzer. And it sort of felt complete. But on that trip home, 
I realized it has to be done before I leave or it's never going to get finished. So, because, you know, we all know what it's like to move. Like it's hard enough to move apartments. It's even harder to move, you know, across the country. So, so it, it just gave me this incentive to finish it. And so I, I did all the final work in Nova Scotia and it felt really appropriate because I think lyrically or the narrative was, was sort of about, I don't know. It seemed to suit what it was about, and it had it suddenly had this urgency. So, yeah, made a, I made a bit of a long story out of it, but yeah, it was it, it was done really quickly in Toronto over a couple of days, and then I then I had the pleasure of finishing it while sort of on a holiday. So, how did you develop it once you took it back to Nova Scotia? How did it change in that space? I think the the main thing I wanted to do right from the very beginning was leave that studio with. Uh, like a complete record. I didn't want to le- end up with too much homework. So the stuff I was able to do in Nova Scotia was really quite nice. It was very textural. There was only one or two songs where I actually had to sing them because I'd done all the singing in the studio. Um, so mostly I was just sort of um, like, I brought my, my, my tape back up. So I was running things to tape and I brought my pianette, like this kind of little key keyboard and you know, old school keyboard, not exactly a Wurlitzer, not exactly a Rhodes, you know, sort of a, a poor man's version of both. I did some of that kind of stuff and laid down. A, it was all just really flavor. And, and then, you know, and putting the mic out the window and capturing the sound of the rain and birds and things and just kind of just giving it an, a feel, giving it like, like kind of tying it all together and of course throwing out some songs like going through and realizing okay this isn't right for the record and kind of picking and choosing it so it sort of came it came to be the record in nova scotia from all the pieces i'd done prior to leaving when you say you were kind of throwing out a few of the songs were you bringing your ones in or just trimming it down a little bit trimming it down i i find that yeah i, I get the best results these days if i record a little too much and then I can kind of edit out a few things and not even necessarily because I don't like the song or something, but just maybe there's a feeling that I could do it better or that it's just something doesn't feel right about it. And it kind of streamlines as I go. Streamlines in terms of the themes and stuff kind of just become more clear and that allows you just to kind of drum the fat. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like to make records that have like, I always want to make like records that have these kind of like rock uh, rock's not maybe the right word, but like I want these songs that are full and impactful, and I want to get like my my buddy to play drums on them, and you know I, I really want to. I, I always want to do that, and then by the end, I always end up just going with really sparse, minimal stuff. Like it feels more more right. Like it, it's this kind of like it seems like my I always end up back on that path, and so yeah, I take these little diversions and then i ultimately come back to like no this is what feels good that other stuff didn't really turn out the way i wanted it to i'm gonna leave that behind how long were you typically divert for yeah that's a good question i think it's changed over the years just by virtue of hopefully figuring out more and more what i want to do um you know i mean if i go back to my younger self i certainly released records that i don't like now i I think most of us have that experience and you know maybe when we're young and playing with our buddies and figuring stuff out, you know, we maybe make a crappy record here and there. It's all part of the learning curve. Yes, it is. And you're kind of exposed. You're like, you're learning on microphone, like you're learning in public a little bit. And, um, but between the two dusted records, 
So between Total Dust and Blackout Summer, I had made a whole record that I'd spent half a year on that I threw out. I had gotten a grant to, to work on the record and, and I couldn't deliver it. So I had to pay the money back. So I lost all the money I spent at the studio. And yeah, it was a real big setback. But I, it feels so good, though, to, to learn that lesson before it's too late. I think that's a big part of who I am as a musician is somebody who's always trying to figure stuff out. Like, I'm, I don't have all the answers. I'm, I'm not... Like I'm learning and I'm, and I'm very, I don't know what the word is, but like, I try, I, I try to make things that are really honest and, um, you know, it's easy to make music for the fun of it and easy to have a blast with their friends and whatnot, but, but maybe, maybe it doesn't feel right. And it takes a while to discover that, but I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for, I'm grateful that I, I'm not afraid to throw something out. The process, I heard the process for this began when a song came to you in a dream. Mm-hmm. Has that happened before? Yeah. Actually, I wrote a song in my dream last night. And Whoa. I, <laughs> and uh, I'm, it was with me all morning and I didn't bother, I didn't bother recording a demo of it on my phone because I was like, oh, I'll remember this. It even had like words and stuff. Uh-oh. And I don't remember it right now. Maybe it'll come back to me, but it, it probably wasn't worth it. But um, But in this situation, it wasn't writing a song it was just the song itself was in my dream i was playing it or something kind of startled me when i woke up because i it was the first time that that had happened where i'd forgotten a song like it took me a moment to even remember what song it was i'd forgotten that it even existed and then and on top of that it was a song i really liked and i'd played often in this one band of mine and we you know tried making a recording of it but that band didn't really happen and that record never happened and i just kind of moved on and um and i couldn't remember how to play it and it's kind of kind of glad i didn't because it was just just beyond consciousness enough that it forced me to take an active participation in relearning it like i had to find the old computer with the old garage band demos i had to like find that song and in the process it it led me to you know, hours of un- of forgotten songs. So it was almost like a little like sneaky. Um, what's the word? Like a like a like the song kind of led me in. It like kind of like begged me to follow it. Kind of it's like a vision, me. like seeing an angel. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like a, my former self was the angel. <laughs> yeah, it, it felt like maybe like a trickster, like the song came to me, but it was like it lured me in and then cracked me over the head with a hard drive full of songs that I, that I probably would have just moved on from otherwise. How, how old was this, uh, this old computer? How old are these songs? Yeah, I, a lot of them are from 2011 and that one was probably even older. There's... And, and, and this record isn't all old songs. I mean, it's only one record, so it's not like we're not talking about a box set. Uh, but basically, probably half of the songs are, are older. And I, and I will be still recording, hopefully, in more songs from that period, like 2010 and 2011. I, I don't know. For some reason, I think I was just writing a lot. I was touring a lot, and I just was always demoing wherever we went i'd pick up the guitar and just do little demos and record them and and, uh i was just too busy to do anything with them so whatever didn't get on total dust got forgotten about and then 
And so now I have them again, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad because it, now I think the process for me, at least for the next record, maybe another couple records, will be continuing to do a similar process of, of revisiting some old songs and bringing in new ones and kind of throwing them all in a pile and seeing what works together. It's, it's, it feels like a good way of kind of completing something, of kind of tying a, a bow around it all. I mean, do you, can you see a distinction between the new songs and the ones from 2011? Were you kind of writing with the themes of the older ones in mind? No, um, not at all. I think, I think maybe 2011 just stands out for me because I think it's a sort of moment where the writing sounds like who I am. Like, so what I write now fits more or less with those songs. So it's sort of like, and that's, you know, it's 10 years. So the last decade is pretty consistent. I can pull from it and it works. And in my opinion, like, I think it fits. Like, it, it, I wouldn't have to tell the audience, like, ooh, I'm going to play an old song and everyone would be like, oh, that sounds like an old song. Like, that sounds like the Brian I used to know. Um, it, it, it just, you know, no one would really know because it just, it, it feels like it's coming from the same place and even the narrative or the lyrics it, it, they don't they don't feel dated to me now I, whereas if i went much further back it, things start to feel dated they just start to feel like a, a different person someone who was listening to different records or trying to do a different thing it's 2011 almost where like the learning curve kind of levels off a little bit like that we were talking about you releasing records you weren't so happy with is that past that point where that stopped happening and you kind of on more of a a clear trajectory when it comes a steady trajectory when it comes to writing quality yeah i, I think so like, like like in going back a bit before that so i made my first holy fuck record and that was the first record that i'd made where i did something that i really wanted to do like it felt like a big part of who i was you know because going back before that like being in high school playing like grungy songs and screaming and moshing and stuff that was a product of my you know, who I was at that time. Um, but I wasn't really finding a voice to, to speak from as I was aging and, and, and moved to Toronto and, you know, was going to concerts and hanging out with other musicians. I really didn't know what to do. And I think it was in that period where I made things that I kind of cringe about. But that first Holy Fuck record, which was from 2005, was so cool for me because it was like, this is just what I want to do. This is like who I am. And it, it's like very uncompromised. It got terrible reviews from Pitchfork or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't care. I was like, yes, I'm doing what I want to do. And it worked. And then because of that, my, I started doing well. So, you know, my career started doing well. And so the next time I picked up my acoustic guitar to make my own solo record, I did my best to do that again, but with very different things. So I, in 2008, I released a solo record. It's just an EP, and it, but it's the first time that I managed to sort of express what I wanted to do in that realm. So it's sort of like those two records really started something. So it, it set a watermark for me, at least emotionally or creatively, in terms of how I felt about records. But these are the kind of records I'm going to make from now on. I, I can't stray. So the record I told you about where I threw it all out, it, it just didn't, it felt too much like an indie rock record, you know, like, like something that you get on indie rock radio and it wasn't who I was, you know, like everything was too polished and didn't have enough of your personality. In it. Yeah. It just didn't speak uh, from my heart. So those records I made 
you know, really set the tone. So I think around 2011, I just, it just happens that I kind of had those lessons and I was just able, like, it wasn't a challenge anymore. Like maybe prior to that, it was a challenge to keep finding that voice. But by that point, it was like, it just was who I was like picking up a guitar just allowed me to write a song that I liked. Like I kind of liked all the songs I was writing. (laughs) (laughs) You, you mentioned that place that you're pulling from as well, that feels like it's still remained the same over the last 10 years why has that place remained the same what is that place that you're pulling from that has remained constant despite the fact that you've maybe changed as a person in the interim yeah i don't know um that's probably something i might know more clearly you know in the years ahead of me when i look back maybe i'll i'll be able to sort of contextualize it a little better i think i just kind of learned a little bit of like what to withhold and what to give you know the 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 kind of how I want to write a hook, just sort of the process of how I like to write a song and what I don't want to do. Like, Oh, I don't want to do this. So I'm not going to do that. Like, it's just kind of like cutting out all the unnecessary things. I'm a very synesthetic person. I I don't have any formal music training or anything. I just, I write very much in my mind and what I picture and that kind of visual space is very important to me. Um, and I think Holy Fuck and Dusted are very, very different, but they both, they both, uh, n- neither of them like, what's the word? Neither, neither of them predict each other. Like, it's like principles in the universe. Like, they, they both work. Like, <laughs> one is gravity and one is, you know, time. Or, or, you know, but they're like principles that work together, even though they're different. And I, uh, that's just how it feels to me. It feels like these two bands both come from the same part of me even though they're both very different. And I don't really know how to explain it beyond that. It's just uh, they both have a certain intensity. Just like kind of, yeah, I think it's, I think it has to do with intentions. You know, just they, they have very clear intentions. And, and that's what I have to listen to. When I go into the studio, I always have to ask myself what the intention is. Like, what's the intention of the song? And why did that last take suck? Like, why did I not get there on that, the last time I played the song in the studio? Or did I maybe I played it too fast or I tried to make it too romantic or I tried to make it too catchy. Or I tried to make it too bombastic. Like it's, it's always trying to revisit the intention. Like what's the intention of the song? What, what is it I wanted to express and how do I get there? And, and yeah, and with Holy Fuck, it's obviously more of a group process because there's other songwriters and band members, but I still, I still try to come out on, with a record that, that is like true to its intentions. It's true to to its uh what it should be what it you know what it really is when you ask yourself that question in the studio does the answer always come straight away no i mean maybe sometimes it's leaving it behind like we were talking about throwing out songs maybe sometimes it's like you know what i'm not going to worry about this song this time around if if the answer is not there usually the answer is there like um just yeah there's there's always a challenge i mean on on the dusted record the new one coming out um my friend Alex, who plays in Mets, he's a really close friend of mine. And, and you know, he's very, um, what's the word? He's, he's quite determined. Like, he really, he's, he's fun in terms of his energy because he, he listens to something I'm working on and he tells me straight up what he thinks of it. And one of the things he was telling me to do was to put drums on some of these songs. And again, we're talking about things being bombastic and maybe that doesn't feel right to me. So that was probably the biggest challenge of, like, reconciling that, like, like, yeah, I know my friend's telling me to do this and he's telling me to do this because he 
he wants to see me succeed. Like he, it's coming from a good place, but I have to reconcile that because that's not the intention of the song. It's not supposed to have drums on it. It's not supposed to feel that way. And so I kind of placated him and put the drums on it. And then, and then I took a step back and realized he was right. So not to contradict everything I've been saying so far, I mean, it, but in, in keeping with what I've been saying about learning as I go, like, I, I don't know, I don't have all the answers, but it, it's very important to me that songs get delivered with the right intention and that, and it's sometimes the process of figuring out what that is. And, and I'll, I'll certainly listen to people's advice. I, I don't always know it. Does the intention evolve for you when you do something like that, where you put drums on it and then suddenly realize it's right? Yeah. When you maybe before didn't think it was. Uh, that's a good question. I, it's, on this particular record, I didn't have to change anything. It was like, I think one of the things I did that I really like and what I do in general these days is I don't use click tracks. So almost every record made these days involves click tracks. So people snap their songs to a grid and they play that way and it, and it changes the feel. And again, that's exactly what I'm talking about. It changes the intention. Like the intention was never meant to be on a, on a click track. I didn't write it by putting a metronome on and then writing a song. I wrote it when I was sitting, I was in a space, I was feeling a certain feeling. There was an emotional connection and that all embeds itself into the rhythm. If it's maybe with withholds a little bit, if it speeds up a little bit, like that's all, that's all part of it. So on this record, when we decided to add drums, there already wasn't a click track. So potentially would scare people away from even trying because most people do these things like add click tracks to their songs and the recording process exactly so they can add drums later so they can change parts move things edit it makes that process easier but in this situation everything stayed the same i just had my friend brad play drums and he's really good so <laughs> so he's a good drummer he was able to come to the studio for all of two hours We'd already set the drums up so they had a good sound. He just came in, sat down, listened to the song, and played the drums. He did that on baseball. He did that on a uh, little more time. Um, and in that process, it, it was, uh, I guess what I'm saying is it was really cool because I didn't have to change anything. The vocals were already there. Everything was there. And I think that's kind of what saved it from being something where the intention is now has to change. Like I, it means something different now. Like it's still, everything was still the same. It just had this other element and, and that, and I, I'm just glad that that's how it unfolded. And again, these are lessons I'm learning. So the next record I make, I want to do the same thing. I want to like not use click tracks. And if I choose to do drums, I'm just going to have to find someone who has that kind of feel because in the end it's going to serve the song better. I mean, it almost feels emotionally true to it too like you open the record on the line i've given up i've i've given enough when you're coming from such a raw place like that regimenting it in place with a clit track probably wouldn't feel natural to the emotion you're trying to convey exactly yeah and it and it's it is a lesson i'm always i don't know I, i'm not going to say like i don't want to sound like some sage with my sagely wisdom or whatever but you know <laughs> I, I i now that i move back i'm probably going to be working with more people on the production level it's something i was doing before i left toronto and of course the pandemic's shut most of that down but i i i've been doing like workshops with kids and teaching uh again i'm not really teaching anything i'm not a music teacher but i've done these workshops and i've done i went to a high school 
for like, you know, I don't know what the politically correct word is, but just, you know, troubled kids and, you know, just doing things like more community based because that's what I have ex- the opportunity to do because I'm not touring. So that's just one of the things I kind of want to show people is that, you know, you don't have to do these things just because that's what everybody's doing right now. Like you can use a click track, you can design a really cool beat in your computer and you can make music that way. And chances are kids probably want to. So I certainly encourage that, but I also want to show people that they don't need to do that. And it's exactly for the reason you described. I think sometimes the intention, the emotion of what was trying to be conveyed in the first place is immediately lost the moment they start to record it because the first thing they do is just snap it in place. They snap it to something that's not theirs. That's not their, it's just not from their soul. It's, you know, it's not part of what that, what they were trying to do in the first place. So yeah, a long winded way to explain that. (laughs) I try to make it more exciting when I talk to the kids. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it comes back to figuring out the intentions before you go in, because it makes a decision like that straightforward. Yes. As opposed to one that you might spend a bit of time deliberating on had you not figured out the intention. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and that's what I've done with the bands and artists that I've produced. I just try to like, we have these conversations first and I, I try not to scare them away from things that are committed. It's too late. You can't go back. You know, it's like <laughs> you, you didn't do a click track and it's too late now. Like, can't add one now and 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 there's an anxiety there there's a fear but but if you can kind of encourage that i think it's it's pretty cool what's the first question you ask someone if you're producing them well the first thing i ask them is if we can get together and list well i'll ask for to hear their demos of course if there's a concert i'd like to see it but i like to sit down with the artist and I often encourage them, if they play guitar, I often encourage them to play the song on the guitar without anything else. I, I guess I just kind of want to get to know the song. So I'm not really interested in the engineering aspect of it. My, my role is not to make the record sound as good as it can. I think that's what most people expect, and I don't care. I don't, I don't care how good a record sounds. It's, to me, it, that'll all come later. And I don't mind, I certainly will hire an engineer or do what I can. But the important thing for me is to really focus on the songs and just, again, the intention of the song, like what, what does this mean? And, and, and find the hook and maybe correct some of the, if there's like an obtuse chord change or something doesn't resolve as well as it could, suddenly that's so much easier to, to, to hear because I'm not focused on the snare sound. I'm not, I'm not like, staring at plugins and trying to load up like sample banks or put decapitator on a bass. Um, instead, I'm just listening to the song and, and trying to find out why that one little turn of phrase is rubbing or something. There's almost, there's almost a sense of distance I get from the song as well, in terms of like narratively and the perspective of where you're writing from. Mm-hmm. Where, yeah. <laughs> what, what was kind of feeling that for you? Well, I don't know. I mean, that's subjective. I think like you're like, is there a distance in terms of, do I feel, do you mean like it sounds like I'm um, distanced in how I'm delivering the emotion or does it feel like there's like a, or does it feel like I'm far away? <laughs> I think the emotion of the songs, like one of the lines that it's one of the more um, direct ones. You've got that line, I'm emotionally detached, I think. Mm-hmm. I can't what song it's in. <laughs> yeah, it's in baseball. Baseball, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's cool. I, you know, I, I, I haven't done a lot of interviews yet for this record and, and um, 
I'm enjoying this, by the way. It's thank fun. You. And thank you. Thank <laughs> you for indulging me. I, I, it's nice to be able to talk about it after being stuck at home, following a toddler around the yard for like a year and a half. Um, so that's interesting because I hadn't really thought of that. But going back to Total Dust, I remember at that time when I was doing interviews and talking about the record, one of the things that kept coming up was the more people the sound, like the fact that I was singing through a blown out amp. And I think there was something about the process of singing through something like a filter or something kind of resonated with me about how I feel like it was sort of expressing the mystery of the world we live in, you know, as like science is, is discovering the answers. And sometimes as an artist, it's reveling in the uncertainty. I don't know. So that, maybe that's, you can quote me. <laughs> uh, it's going to be on a t-shirt someday. Um, but that was something that I was learning after that record was made. And it was part of the connection I was making to the music. And, and I think that still holds true on this one. And, and maybe more specifically, like you're saying distance, I think there's something fascinating about hovering just outside of something like being a third party to something like to your own self, like, you know, songs that come to you in dreams, um, lyrics that could be about one thing, but could also be about something else. It's, I don't, I don't intend to be vague to the point of it being frustrating, but I don't see the role that music plays as being direct. I, I don't want to tell people how they, the song should make them feel or what it's about. And I like the kind of otherworldliness of it. Like uh, right now I'm playing with a group where we, there's myself and three other women who play harp and um, guitar and a stringed instrument, a, a Middle Eastern stringed instrument. And it's just improvised, but it's so daydreamy. I, I, I love playing in that group. Whether or not we ever get to do anything, I don't know. Like we, we put out a record, but there's something about occupying a, a, a space that, that feels slightly removed from this dimension, I think is part of what makes music special. It's, it's an escape. It's, there's fantasy in it. Um, and, you know, when my daughter goes to sleep at night, I... Like most people, I use streaming services these days, even though I know they're bad for us, <laughs> bad for us musicians. But I put playlists together of music and I sit there with my headphones on. I'm, I'm very like, I love the process of listening. And so I guess when I contribute back and I want to create music, I want to make it live in this space of being kind of escapist and a little bit outside the realm that we occupy every day. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of learning this as I speak right now, uh, just kind of walking through my mind here trying to answer that question because I do think there's something to it. Like there was on that Total Dust record, like there's on this, there's just something about occupying some space that's not super direct. It's not super one-dimensional and in front of you. I just, whether it's lyrically or the way I strum the guitar or something, I just kind of want to be slightly removed slightly outside there's a strange kind of intimacy about that as well though yeah well yeah like being sort of in your mind <laughs> <laughs> being just over your shoulder again the synesthetic part of my mind is kicking in where i'm trying to answer this question as directly i can but i'm, I'm resorting to more 
image images and ideas that way. But yeah, I like the idea that like if you're putting on my record, I'm sort of weirdly there. Like it's it's intimate. Yeah, it's intimate, but I'm not really there. I'm just kind of sneaking around. <laughs> I'm, I'm like a floating Cheshire cat smile or something. <laughs> if, I, I like this idea of images because the way I kind of framed it in my mind when I first heard it was if we think about the second dusted record, you have that image of a sunset on the cover. Mm-hmm. This one almost feels like it's taking place once the sun has gone down, but you can still kind of see stuff a little bit. Like it's not oh, totally wow. dark. You can see the shapes if you know what I mean. Yes. Yes. I love that. And, um, interesting too. Cause that correlates. We, we just shot a video just last week. I'm going to be looking at a cut of it after we finish here. And, um, and what kind of correlates in an eerie kind of way is we went to a very beautiful location on the ocean at a lighthouse, but I hired the drone camera and I went there with my wife, who's a, who's a cinematographer at, you know, eight, 30 at night to just to just shoot after the sun went down and wrapping up before it got totally dark and uh, so that's just a funny coincidence from what you say but there was a desire there was an intention an intentional thing to do that because i didn't want it to be a sunset i didn't want it to be beautiful but i still wanted it to be to be able to see and um I sent it to my friend to edit and he didn't, he thought some of the shots were done in the morning. He thought some of them were done at night. It, it kind of achieved its goal of being a little bit mysterious somehow. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting to think about. It's almost similar to the album cover as well. The way you mm-hmm. can have those scratches on it. Yeah. <laughs> if you know what I mean? Like, it's it's that's, that's like haze. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's, that, that's why that is the album cover. Like that was a Polaroid that we, my wife and I were shooting just for fun because I think we needed an image for something. And I, so I suggested we use the Polaroid. She really likes to use natural light. That's kind of her thing when she's um, as a photographer. So that pack of film was flawed and that the scratches existed already. So it wasn't intentional. It's not like I relicked my photo, but if it wasn't for those scratches, I don't think it would have made an emotional connection. If you know what I mean? Like, sure. I, I, you could take a picture of me, but I probably wouldn't put it on the cover. Um, but the eerie placement of those scratches kind of did synesthetically represent the process of listening, the process of, of um, where I hope to come from, like sort of hidden, sort of behind, sort of vague or, or not vague, but, uh, you know, just indirect, out of focus. Ghostly. Ghostly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 